Father, thank you for this time that you've given us to study your word. And I do pray that as we uh, just look into what your word says, that you would give us ears to hear, um, give us soft hearts to receive your message. And um, yeah, that that would be ready um, uh, for your spirit to do um, a work on our hearts. And I, I pray that we just approach your word with humility, um, knowing that when your word speaks, that you speak. Um, and so minister... Um, to our hearts tonight, um, remind us of the gospel and, and your great mercy towards us. We thank you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so we're wrapping up our short study in um, the, this well-known book of Jonah tonight. And then after tonight, we're going to spend a couple of Friday nights um, kind of just explaining and preparing our hearts for uh, when we transition our meeting time to Sunday afternoons. So that's coming in March, if you didn't know. Um, so yeah, a lot coming up. Next two weeks, we'll, we'll focus on that, and then we'll have retreat. And after we come back from retreat, um, we'll start on Sundays. So exciting time for our ministry. Um, but we're finishing Jonah tonight, and I hope that our time in Jonah has been helpful for you. Um, I know it has been for me. I feel like just each week um, going through this book has been convicting. Uh, I've been uh, just, I think God has revealed all of my own pride and my hypocrisy and my lack of love for others. And yet at the same time, I have been reminded and I've been amazed by God's vast and amazing and relentless grace. Um, I mean, you would think just reading through this, right? Like after all that Jonah has experienced of God's mercy, that uh, he would be a totally changed man. And we see that that's not the case, right? You would think that like, this would be enough for him uh, just to be faithful and to be obedience from then on and for the rest of his life. But uh, we see that uh, it's this reminder that like Jonah, we are all in need of this continual education of God's grace. And we all have fickle hearts and God is so patient with us. Um, he is willing to teach us and to transform us. And so, yeah, I hope that this book has been helpful for you guys. Um, just to review where we left off, last week in chapter three, we saw that the word of the Lord had come to Jonah a second time, right? It starts the same, chapter three starts the same way that chapter one did. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And this time Jonah actually goes to Nineveh. And, and by God's mercy, um, Jonah's imperfect obedience, that's the phrase that Seichi used, right? His imperfect obedience and his message, which was recorded in only five words in the Hebrew, leads to citywide repentance in Nineveh. We saw that everyone from the king to even the cattle, they turn from their evil ways. They put on sackcloth and ashes. Um, in, in chapter three, verse nine, the king says, who knows God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So there's this citywide brokenness and repentance over their sin. And what does God do? Well, the final verse of chapter three, it says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. So that's where we left off. That brings us to where we are here in chapter four. And maybe even for some of you, um, you like you don't even know that chapter four exists, right? Or like you, you might've forgotten um, that this was part of the story. Maybe you're not familiar with it uh, because it does often get left out. And if, if you read through it, I think you can see why. Uh, if you thought the fish was weird, there's even more like miraculous kind of creation stuff in here. Uh, we read about like a plant and a worm and, and uh, the book ends talking about cows, about cattle. Uh, but not only that, the, the book also ends very abruptly, 
right? It has this like unresolved question that just leaves us hanging there. And if you think about it, wouldn't it have made perfect sense to just end after chapter three, right? Think about what the story would have been. Jonah runs away, God brings his prophet back, uh, and then Jonah is obedient and Nineveh repents, right? You have this story, if you ended after chapter three, from, from crisis to resolution, um, from rebellion to obedience, from destruction to deliverance. And you could have read Jonah one to three and been like, you know, be like Jonah and go be a missionary, right? And that might've been motivation enough for us to do that. The book doesn't end there. In chapter four, the camera turns once again back to Jonah, because as we have already alluded to throughout our study, there is still more work to be done in Jonah's heart. And, and as readers of this book, we recognize that in ourselves as well right? There's more work to be done in our own hearts. More than just ministry endeavors or outcomes, more than just outward obedience, uh, more than the things that we do for God, more than even just uh, Nineveh's miraculous repentance, this book is addressing something that is deeper than that. Do we really understand God? Do we really understand his grace? Do we really understand ourselves rightly? Does our heart reflect the heart of God? And what is your attitude and what is your disposition toward other people, especially those who are different from you? That, those are the questions that this book is getting at. And this lesson comes to us in this concluding chapter. Uh, and so let's read it together. Jonah chapter four, we'll read the entire chapter. Jonah chapter four, starting in verse one. Actually, let me back up. I'll start <clears throat> in chapter three, verse 10. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Here's chapter four. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Um, that is the word of God. A couple things about this passage before we jump into our points here. Um, first is there's a lot of parallels in the structure or in the book of Jonah. 
right? And one of those parallels that we see is in the prayers in chapter two and in chapter four. Um, in chapter two, it was the first time that Jonah prays to God in this book. And we saw that that prayer was this desperate prayer for salvation, right? A desperate prayer for God to, to save and to de- deliver his life. And here in chapter four, Jonah prays again. And in fact, this is the first recorded exchange before God in Jonah. So in Jonah chapter two, it was his first prayer. In Jonah chapter four, it's their first conversation. And it is such a stark contrast to that first prayer. This prayer is Jonah's begrudging protest to God. And when you think about it, it's super ironic because it's the same thing that provokes both prayers. Right? Whether it's God or whether it's Jonah's prayer of praise or whether it's his prayer of protest, the same thing that provokes both of them is God's mercy. Second thing I wanna point out about this passage um, is that it's kind of unclear the timing of these events in our passage. And some commentators suggest that chronologically verses one to four, uh, it takes place after God's decision to relent uh, in, in 310. And then verses five to 11 is kind of a flashback to after Jonah preaches, but before God made his decision to spare Nineveh. So those 40 days that Jonah was talking about. And uh, we see this throughout Jonah already where uh, the narrator kind of jumps ahead, right, in time, and then we'll come backwards. Um, Others do, other commentators do read this chronologically. And I think that's interesting to think about as well because uh, we see if that's the case, then Jonah runs again, right? Like God speaks and asks him a question and then Jonah runs again out of the city and God in his mercy pursues him. And so um, either way, I think it doesn't change how we understand the point of the passage, but that's how, so, uh, that's how some commentators understand it. Uh, but let's, let's jump into our, our points. We'll take this in two parts. Point number one is what Jonah wanted God to do. What Jonah wanted God to do. Um, so we ended chapter three with God relenting of his disaster against Nineveh. And how does Jonah respond? It says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Or if you want to translate that even more literally, uh, you can translate it as, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil. It was evil to Jonah, a great evil. And that word evil, um, it's the Hebrew word ra'ah. It's a key word in the book of Jonah. You can translate it as disaster or discomfort. Um, And we've seen this word throughout the book. For example, it was Nineveh's evil, which prompted God to send Jonah. Uh, And and when the citizens of Nineveh repented of their evil, God relented of the disaster, the same word that he said he would bring upon them. So this is a key word throughout the book of Jonah. But here in chapter four, verse one, when it says that it displeased Jonah exceedingly, it is the only instance where this word evil is described as great. Now just think about that for a second. Everyone in this book has relinquished or released their evil, whether, whether it was God with his impending judgment on Nineveh, or it was the Ninevites of their evil ways. Everyone has relinquished their evil except for Jonah. And the greatest evil in this book, according to Jonah, the thing that incites his anger was God turning away from his anger. I mean, what just happened here right in chapter three? The entire city of Nineveh has just repented. They've decided to turn from their evil ways. Just imagine if, if ISIS uh, like just dropped their weapons, stopped doing what they're doing and turned to God. 
You have missionaries, you have evangelists, you have church planners doing ministry in dangerous and hard to reach places who would give everything to see something like this. And this is an unprecedented revival. This is a great awakening in response to the message of this reluctant prophet. And Jonah resents it. Jonah is angry. It is a great evil to him. He does do one thing, at least, that's commendable, which is he brings his anger to God. And he says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, there's a lot happening in there. um, So we'll break it down into those sub points there. Um, First, we learn Jonah's motive. And we've learned, we've mentioned this throughout our study of Jonah. Uh, but here at the very end of the book is where we finally get to hear from Jonah himself why he did what he did. He says, this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. So the reason why he fled in the other direction, the reason why he refused to go in chapter one, it wasn't because uh, he was scared. It wasn't because of what the Assyrians might do to him, but it was because he was afraid of what God might do to the Assyrians. He didn't want to see God spare that evil city. And so when God does do that, Jonah basically says, I told you so. Right? He says to God, I knew that this was going to happen. Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? I knew that you would be gracious and merciful. That's just the kind of God that you are. And in his stubbornness, despite all that he has gone through, despite all the ways that he has already been corrected, I mean, this statement shows that Jonah still thinks that he's right. He's like, God, I've been right all along. Now, it's hard to, to pinpoint exactly maybe all the reasons why Jonah might've felt that way. Um, perhaps it was that sense of uh, superiority that he felt as an Israelite, right? As God's people, uh, as opposed to those who were not part of God's people. Or maybe he was concerned about his reputation. If Nineveh was spared, um, then that would lead to the downfall of Israel. Right? And maybe Jonah just didn't want to be associated with that. Or even maybe he just didn't want to be known as a false prophet. I mean, if Jonah had predicted judgment and judgment didn't happen, then what might other people think of his ministry? What might they think of his legitimacy as a prophet? Whatever horizontal human reasons might've been at play, the author here frames it vertically for us. And he says, Jonah, really at the end of it, Jonah has a problem with God himself. And Jonah resents the character of God. He, he genuinely thought he knew better, right? He, he thought he had to play theological advisor to the almighty God. Now for us, I, I think there are various ways that this might play out in our own lives. Uh, maybe it's a theological issue that you just have a hard time accepting and submitting to. Maybe it's like the doctrine of predestination or uh, just what the Bible teaches about men's and women's roles. Or maybe it's a cultural issue that you wrestle with and you, you disagree with God's word about, uh, maybe LGBTQ issues. Maybe it's simply the circumstances of your own life. Right? You, you resent God because you feel like his ways or his plans for, for you differ than what you think is best. And functionally, we can think that we know better than God himself. Right? But I think one other area that can reveal that same sort of attitude where we think, oh, we know better than God is how we view other people. Now, I remember reading about uh, this NFL player, uh, his name is Ray Lewis. He used to play for the Baltimore Ravens. 
Um, <clears throat> and he had a really successful career. His, his final career game actually was, he won the Super Bowl um, in 2013. And he was, the Ravens beat the Niners um, in the Super Bowl. And uh, storybook ending, right, to, uh, to a, a great career of winning the Super Bowl, the, the most important game of all. And, and a- after the game, the media asked him, uh, hey, what is it like to end your career as a champion? Right, on, on TV, and this is what he said. He said, it's simple. When God is for you, who can be against you? Okay? If God is for you, who can be against you? And first of all, that is taking Romans 8.31 super out of context, okay? Um, but it also shows this tendency of ours to assume that God is more on our side than he is on other people's side, right? Especially when it comes to our enemies and difficult people. And I mean, this is like an insignificant example, but like, Ray Lewis is saying, you know, God is, ra- God is wearing a Ravens jersey and not a Niners jersey, right? Like God is on my team and not the other person's team. And that's Jonah here. He says, God should care more about us than he should care about them. And when God's actions didn't match up with Jonah's own preconceived notions, he resented God for it. He said, God, you're wrong. I told you so. One author put it like this. You can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. So that's uh, Jonah's motive. Secondly, we see Jonah's theology. Uh, He says, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, if that statement sounds familiar to you, it's because it's, uh, it's very significant, right? It's a very significant statement about God throughout the Old Testament. Um, we see it in Exodus and Numbers, Nehemiah, Joel, uh, various Psalms. And, and actually those aren't just words about God, but it's what God speaks about himself. It's what Yahweh discloses about himself. Um, in Exodus 34, where, where this comes up for the first time, <clears throat> Moses asked God to show him his glory. And as Yahweh passes by Moses, this is what he says about himself, right? This is his God's self-disclosure. And as a prophet, Jonah would have been intimately familiar with this. And from his actions, right, we see that he, he truly believed it. Right? He, he didn't doubt that God would be merciful and slow to anger with the Ninevites. He didn't doubt that God would relent from disaster. He just didn't like it. But Jonah should have been familiar also with the context of Exodus 34. And if he, if he were familiar with that context, he would have known that Israel, his own people, used to be where Nineveh was. That Israel also were the recipients of God's unmerited mercy. You see Exodus 34, it takes place with Moses and God. They're on Mount Sinai. It's actually the second time that that God has given Moses the law to write on the tablets. And it's the second time and not the first time because the first time uh, Moses smashed them in anger because when he came back down, he saw his people worshiping a golden golden calf, right? So that's, that's what happened the first time. And in that passage, um, Exodus 32 to 34, um, Yahweh threatens to destroy Israel. He says, you know what, Moses, I'll just start over with you. But Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel. And I want you to notice some of the same language that we saw in Jonah. Moses pleads with God. He says, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. And what does God do? It says, and the Lord relented from the disaster, disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. In fact, one significant difference between the two situations is that Israel hadn't even repented yet, right? It was only because Moses himself had simply interceded on their behalf. 
Something else that I find interesting about this connection between Exodus 32 and 34 and our passage here in Jonah is that one of the ways that Moses actually intercedes for sinful Israel is by appealing to Yahweh's reputation among the nations. He basically says to God, like, what, is, what will become of your plan for the nations if Israel is wiped out? Uh, it's, it's, it's this example of, um, of, God, of restating God's promises to him. We see this um, throughout the Psalms, right? And it's a legit, legitimate point that God did have this grander plan of redemption for the world, which would be carried out through Israel. It is uh, enough to convince God to change his mind and to, to relent. Well, here in Jonah 4, we actually see this foretaste. We actually see a glimpse of that plan for the nations, of God's plan for the nations, starting with Nineveh's repentance, right? This is playing out in front of Jonah and Jonah misses it. And God is like, you are in this privileged position to see my plan for the nations start to unfold. And all Jonah is thinking about is what Nineveh's deliverance might mean for Israel. And so you read all of this, right? And you recognize that Jonah was, was studied, that his theology was all there. He knew all the right things but it hadn't transformed his heart. And the last point here is Jonah's ultimatum. So after he has said all of that, this is his conclusion, verse three. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. And this is a sentiment that we have seen Jonah demonstrate already uh, through his actions uh, throughout this book. In chapter one, he would, he would rather die in the sea than to obey God's call to Nineveh. But how does God respond? I mean, how would you respond if, if someone was like Jonah to you, right? If someone was like um, sulking and kind of acting like a crybaby, right? And like all prideful to you, how would you respond? I mean, I would say like, how dare you? Right? Like, are you kidding me? Like, are you really saying that to me right now? But I love that God acts completely in line and completely consistently with what Jonah has just said about God. God is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that is exactly how God is towards Jonah even now. And in his patience and in his kindness, God asks a question. I mean, throughout the Bible, um, we see God ask questions even in the worst moments of sin to draw out people's hearts. To Adam and Eve, he said, where are you? Um, to Cain, he said, where is Abel your brother? To Judas, right before he would betray Jesus, he says, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? And here to Jonah, God says to him, do you do well to be angry? Or what right do you have to be angry? And this leads us to our second point. Point number two, what God wanted Jonah to understand. Like I mentioned earlier, it's kind of unclear how verses five to 11 fits into the order of events. But we learn that at some point, um, perhaps immediately after his preaching, Jonah goes out of the city. He makes this booth for himself and he sits there and it says, so he should see what would become of the city. And just like imagine that scene for a second, right? Inside the city walls, you have um, the king of Nineveh. You have everyone in Nineveh just sitting in the discomfort of their sackcloth and ashes. They're hoping, praying that maybe, you know, God would relent that maybe the city would be saved. And meanwhile, you have Jonah, he's outside the city, sitting under his booth, and he's, he's watching this city, hoping maybe God would destroy them. And while Jonah is sitting there, God teaches him using an object lesson. So we move from, from questions to object lesson, and 
like, just think about that, right? Like, God is so gracious and God is so patient. I mean, aren't object lessons for children's ministry? I don't know if you ever uh, taught an object lesson before. I mean, Pastor Kim doesn't do that, like, on Sundays. Um, Object lessons require creativity. They require thoughtfulness and patience. But God does this because God wants Jonah to understand. And he will graciously take the time to teach his prophet. And in this object lesson, God appoints, and that's a key word there, right? Just like he appointed the storm or appointed the fish, God appoints a plant. And this plant grows and it provides shade from the heat of the sun. It says here that Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And so we can translate that again, literally, that Jonah rejoiced over the plant with great rejoicing. And we're meant to see a contrast there, right? With with verse one, that it was evil to Jonah, a great evil. This is the only time in the book that Jonah is actually happy about something. And there's this plant to guard him from the sun. But this object lesson isn't over. Verses seven to eight says that God appoints a worm. And, And this worm attacks the plant and this plant withers. And God appoints this scorching east wind, which causes Jonah to fall faint. Um, In the ancient Near East, when these winds blew, uh, the temperature would rise dramatically. The humidity would drop. Uh, There would be dust everywhere. It would lead to exhaustion, um, even just like bizarre behavior, um, illusions. These were brutal conditions. And so it's understandable that Jonah would make that same statement again. It is better for me to die than to live. What is happening here? Essentially, God is doing to Jonah in a very, very small way. God is doing to Jonah what Jonah wanted God to do to Nineveh, which is he takes away his mercy. Now here's God's point in verses nine to 11. He asked Jonah that same question. Do you do well to be angry? But this time it's not about Jonah's anger at Nineveh's salvation, but it's Jonah's anger at this plant being taken away. And Jonah still doesn't get it, right? He says, yeah, I do well to be angry, like angry enough to die. Look at verse 10. Here's the lesson. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Did you catch the point that God is trying to make there? It's this, this lesser to greater argument. Right? God is saying, Jonah, if you feel pity, if you feel compassion for this plant, then how much more do I have a right to feel compassion for Nineveh, that great city? Right? Just think about it. You, you never had for the plant this devotion of the gardener. You didn't labor over it. You didn't make it grow. You invested no effort in it. It lived only a day. If it was not right for the plant to die, then how can it be right for Nineveh to perish? I mean, how much more do I have a right to be concerned about my creation, my people, my glory than you do, Jonah, about your comfort and your shade? God says, I made this city. I made these people. These are eternal souls. These are image bearers. These are people who are spiritually lost. Um, that, that phrase, there are 120,000 persons who don't know their, their right hand from their left, that's talking about their ignorance, right? Uh, it doesn't excuse them from their sin. Um, and it's clear from God's message of judgment against them. But it talks about how they're trapped. Right? They're blind. They have no way of getting out. They're on this hellbound race and no one is telling them about it. 
In fact, even if it had just been cattle in Nineveh, that's why the cattle are included and no people, God says, I still would have had greater reason for my compassion on this city than Jonah ha- you have for your plant. And you consider all of that. If all that you say about how you feel, if all that Jonah says about how he feels about this plant is true, and God says, when you look at this city, how can you not be moved? Right? How can you not feel anything for them? I think the two ideas that, that really seem to be emphasized here uh, that are, are kind of at the heart of God's argument are his absolute freedom and his vast and expansive mercy. Right? His absolute freedom and his vast and expansive mercy. And certainly those two ideas are related. Right? In Romans 9, 14 to 15, Paul simply argues that at a certain point, we just have to acknowledge that God is free to do whatever he wants. That he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and compassion on whom he has compassion. That the freedom of God means that as creatures, we don't have the right to question God, our creator. But not only that, right? As recipients of God's mercy, we don't have the right to be outraged at and to limit God's mercy for others. Jonah and all of us aren't just neutral third-party observers. No, we needed mercy and we received it even though God didn't have to give it to us. And that's what Jonah did not understand. That's what he forgot, that you cannot have it both ways. If you want strictly justice for Nineveh, then God says, okay, Jonah, you better be able to handle justice yourself, right? But if you want God's mercy for yourself, then you have to be okay with embracing that same mercy when it is extended to other people as well. In fact, Jesus has a parable illustrating this in Matthew 20, um, verses one to 16. It's the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And in that parable, the master of of the house goes around the marketplace. He starts hiring people to work in his uh, vineyard throughout the day, different hours of the day. And what happens is at the very end of that day, the very end of the work day, Um, No matter how much time each person has worked, the master pays all of them the same wage, right? And and you read that and you think to yourself, is that fair? Right, like, how is that fair? Wouldn't you be upset if you started work at 8 a.m. and then the same person who was hired at 8 p.m. got the same wage that you did? What does the master say in that parable? says, am I now allowed to do, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, right? His free, God's freedom. And then he also says, or do you begrudge my generosity? That's God's mercy. Do you get his point there? Whether or not you were hired in the morning or in the evening, or whether you were hired at the very last second, that parable is teaching us that it is a mercy that the master would extend an invitation to you at all. In fact, that 11th hour generosity, that last second generosity should be a reminder to all of us and help all of us see even more clearly, not that we're better than everyone else, but that God is gracious and merciful to you every moment of the day. Have you lost sight that we are undeserved recipients of God's mercy? When is the last time that you've really thought to yourself, you know what, this is better than I deserve? And I think for so many of us, we are like that begrudging laborer in in the parable. We so often keep record of other people's wrongs and we keep record of all the ways and all the times we feel like we've been right. And we do the math and we think to ourselves, you know, I'm entitled to this. I feel like I deserve this. I've earned this. 
but God doesn't operate that way. I mean, can you imagine if he did? Can you imagine if God treated us the way that we so often sinfully treat other people? You thank God that he is gracious and generous with us, that he is unlike us. And so God's message to Jonah is this, when you consider everything, should I really be more like you, Jonah? Or maybe, just maybe, should you be more like me? Should your heart look more like my heart? Is your anger wiser than my compassion? Is my mercy to sinners an offense to you? Or is it my glory? Beacon, do you see the world as Jonah sees it or do you see it as God sees it? Does your heart reflect Jonah's heart or does it reflect God's heart? Let me just give you two quick questions um, that kind of elaborate on that. First is how do you see yourself in relation to others? This is the idea of humility. I mean, as we've mentioned throughout our study and especially during the storm in chapter one, Jonah, this prophet of God, he is the one who ends up looking like the worst sinner rather than the pagan people, right? Rather than the sailors and even the Ninevites. Like he looks like the worst sinner. And we see God's grace in Jonah's life, arguably in even more relatable and greater ways than we see with any other character in this story. Right? We see God's grace, not just in the spectacular moments of deliverance, whether it's the great fish swallowing up Jonah or the calming the storm or, <coughs> or God relenting of his disaster, also in the not as noticeable moments, right? And I said earlier that word um, evil or, or discomfort or disaster, uh, that's a very key word in, in Jonah. It actually shows up nine times throughout this book. But look at verse six, and I don't want you to miss that word in verse six. It says, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. That's that same word, ra'ah, right? Or evil or disaster. And so as much as the plant was there to spare Jonah from the discomfort of the sun and the heat, I think what it's also saying there is that that plant was there as God's object lesson to save Jonah from his own sin. That that plant was there as God's object lesson to root out this lack of compassion in Jonah's heart, to save him from his own disaster. And even in Jonah's continued stubbornness and failure, God is graciously and patiently working. And as much as you and I, as we read through, through this book, you might've written Jonah off, that's not what God does, right? He, he sticks with Jonah. He's working in his heart. He's continuing to show grace to him and transform him. And that's true of our lives as well. That God's grace not only saves you and pardons you, but it pursues you. It not only forgives and relents of disaster, but it transforms and it sanctifies. And that ought to humble us. I love how the apostle Paul and if you think about it, Paul was a former kind of Jonah, right? He was a Pharisee. I love how he talks about himself in 1 Timothy 1, 13 to 16. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted in ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost but I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I mean, Paul says there, I am the worst sinner that I know. 
I am the foremost of sinners in my life as an example of the perfect patience and mercy of God. Beacon, can you genuinely say that about yourself? Because when we are not able to say that, say that about ourselves, when I am not able to say that about myself, I can feel the very real temptation to be like Jonah. I can feel the very real um, temptation to root against someone that you find hard to love. Like just imagine right now, if, if your worst enemy, if someone you really have a hard time with, if all of a sudden they were welcomed into your circles, they were welcomed into your home, uh, they were welcomed into your church, if your friends started liking them and enjoying being around them, I mean, maybe it's not as drastic as like, oh, I don't want them to be saved, but I feel their very real temptation in those moments to root against them, to want to see them fail. I don't want to see my enemies included. I don't want to see them enjoy blessing or for people to like them because I think to myself, oh, they don't deserve it. And I do. Well, when others sin against you and when they mistreat you, this passage shows us that we should be able to say, you know what? I am like that too. I am like that angry person too. And I grieve at your sin of pride or anger or selfishness. I grieve at your sin of this desire to control everything. But I know that in my heart of hearts, I fully understand my own temptations. I fully understand that I am just like that. I am the worst sinner that I know. And I don't want to respond as if I'm better than you, but I want to respond as an example of Christ's perfect patience with me. Is that how you look at people? This humility, recognizing that you are the foremost of sinners. And then secondly, how do you see others in relation to God? And the idea here is compassion. And you just take a moment and read again what God says about Nineveh in verse 11. He says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. When God looks at the lost, he feels compassion. And even in his absolute and total sovereignty, he desires for his people, for his creation to be rescued. I mean, do we reflect that same kind of heart when we consider the people in our lives that don't know Christ? Right? When we think about the people on our campuses or our unsafe friends and family, when we think about even our worst enemies and the people that we struggle to love, I mean, I think it's so fitting that we're going through 1 Peter and this section on evangelism. As Pastor Kim said, our guiding light, right, to living faithfully in, for Christ in the world that is opposed to him, our guiding light is this desire to see other people saved for the glory of God. And so when you think about the people in your life that don't know the gospel, when you, when you think about their faces and they come to mind, what do you see? You think about those people in your dorm who go out and party uh, every weekend. Do you think of them as just like annoying or loud or immature? Or do you see them as lost souls who don't know better than the empty, empty cisterns that they're drinking from? When you think about that outspoken liberal atheist in your class, do you see that person as the enemy of everything that you believe in and stand for? Do you see that person as someone who desperately needs the Holy Spirit to open their eyes to the truth? When you think about your unsafe family member, do you, do you think about that person as, oh, like I get to, I'm thankful I only see them like once in a while, right? And, and hopefully I don't have to have this extended conversation with them. Or do you see that person as someone who doesn't know eternal life? When your friend brings an unsaved friend to your get together, 
Do you wish that your friend didn't bring them? Or do you see an opportunity to plant a seed that, one, that might one day sprout in the heart of a new brother or sister in Christ? When you think about unreached people groups in the world, do you think about that as a statistic on a website? Or do you recognize those are real people with real souls who have never heard of or even have access to Jesus or the gospel? How do you look at people? Do you have compassion like God does? How are we supposed to make sense of the ending of this book? I mean, it's kind of a weird way to end. And, and if you think about it, shouldn't like we at least find out what happens to Jonah if he's the main character? Um, does Jonah change or not? Well, the text doesn't tell us. And maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. Maybe, maybe he's the one who wrote the book. Right? Who else was there to witness all of this and write it down? We don't know. But that's not really the point. It's not as important how Jonah answers God's question than how we as the readers choose to respond to this question. I mean, it is easy to to scratch our heads, to laugh at or to criticize Jonah for being dramatic and childish. But I hope the more time that we spent studying this, like I said, I hope we all realize that we are like him. And even more than that, we need to recognize that Jonah is not the main character in this story. God is. I mean, think about it. What would this story sound like to retell it from God's point of view? You have God who feels pity and compassion for Nineveh, that great city. And so he commissions his prophet to go and to preach to them. But when his prophet disobeys, God's care and compassion and his heart is not content to just leave it there. And God is determined to bring about his grace, not just in the repentance of Nineveh, but also in the heart of his own rebellious prophet. That's what it would sound like when we recognize that God is center stage. We see grace upon grace upon grace. Now, throughout our time in Jonah, we've made the connection to Jesus and the gospel. And uh, it's not just us being creative uh, because Jesus says it himself. He says in the New Testament that something greater than Jonah is here. And, And I think we see that again in our passage. That Jonah ran away from his enemies. He hopes for their destruction that Jesus Christ moves towards his enemies. He saves them from destruction. And Jonah looked at Nineveh through eyes of hatred and hypocrisy. And Jesus looks at the crowds and he has tears in his eyes and compassion in his heart. Jesus looks at the lost as sheep without a shepherd. He is the shepherd who would leave the 99 to pursue the one. In Jesus, we see the perfect heart right? Perfect and generous love, not excusing, not harshly condemning. In Jesus, we see that he is a human embodiment of this God in Jonah 4. And Jesus did not simply weep for us, but he died for us. Jonah went outside the city hoping to witness its condemnation, but Jesus Christ went outside the city to die on a cross to accomplish its salvation. And so how can God be both merciful and just Well, that answer isn't given in the book of Jonah, but we do see that answer on the cross. It says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And on the cross, he drank the cup of God's justice and wrath so that we might enjoy God's mercy instead. You know, so often we want God to be more like us, to think the way that we do, to agree with the things that we agree with, to like the people that we like. I think, I hope we have seen that we are the ones who need to be more like him. And by his grace, God is transforming our stingy 
and small and self-righteous prideful hearts to be more like his. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we have such an inadequate, uh, self-centered view of your mercy. Uh, we, we, have, we are undeserved recipients of it, and, and yet uh, we are so prideful to think that we can limit it. Um, that, uh, we, we, yeah, that we know who is right, we know who is wrong, and um, <clears throat> we are stingy with our forgiveness and uh, with the grace that we've received. Father, we confess all the ways that we are like Jonah. And we thank you for our study in this book, that it has revealed that to us. Um, and yet at the same time, it has revealed to us uh, grace upon grace upon grace, that you, uh, your grace is not just expansive and wide uh, for, for the outsider, for the unlikeliest of people, but it is also persistent. It pursues us. It, it, uh, yeah, it roots out the evil in our own hearts. And so, Father, as we wrap up this book, Lord, I pray that it would bear much fruit in our lives. Help us to be honest with ourselves before your word. And we do ask that you would change our hearts um, to have hearts that reflect yours. God, we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.